This series of Tilly at Home With is sponsored by Wanderlust. I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying doing yoga at home and I've been using their new Wanderlust TV platform. There's yoga, meditation, breath work and fitness classes on there and all with world-class teachers from the US and the UK. Great news is that they're offering the listeners of this podcast a three-month subscription for just £9 and everything's included in that, so there are no excuses. Just go to tv.wanderlust.com and use the code Tilly at Home and find your true north. Welcome to Tilly at Home with Patrick Holford. Patrick Holford is a leading spokesman on nutrition and mental health and the founder of both the Food for the Brain Foundation and the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. Originally trained in psychology, Patrick was involved in groundbreaking research showing that multivitamins can increase children's IQ scores. He was one of the first promoters of the importance of zinc, essential fats, low GL diets and homocysteine lowering B vitamins and their importance in mental health and Alzheimer's prevention. He is the author of 45 books translated into over 30 languages, his most recent being The Hybrid Diet, The Flu Fighters and The Five Day Diet. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. So where did it all begin for you? Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I had some uh, mystical experiences as an early teenager, and that got me thinking, what's life all about, really? Uh, or Alfie, I think we could say. And that got me into psychology, and I had two passions in psychology. One was intelligence, how can we have more of it? And the other was schizophrenia, because one in a hundred people suffer from this devastating mental illness. And I was sort of oriented towards psychotherapy, probably you know, thought that was my career path. But what happened was uh, in the 70s, I came across a study which turned out to be the first ever double blind control placebo trial in the history of psychiatry, where schizophrenics had been given large amounts of B vitamins versus placebo, and they got better. Yeah. And, and I jumped on a plane and went to visit Professor Abram Hoffer, who was the research director for psychiatry in, in the province in Canada, and asked him, how many people have you treated with this megavitamin approach? And he said, over 3,000. And I said, what's your success rate? And he said, 85% cure. And I said, I've never seen a cured schizophrenic. You know, please define your terms. And he said, uh, free of symptoms, able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax. So so in effect, I became his student. And um, a few years later, wind on about eight years, uh, started to form, I'm in my early 20s then, so it's all happening quite fast. I decided we needed an institute for optimum nutrition to really study this. And uh, Dr. Linus Pauling, who I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, was the patron of, of the Institute. And one of my very first projects, my first group of students there, because in effect, we invented a new profession called nutritional therapy. And one of my students was the headmaster of a, of a, a secondary school. And we devised a study uh, which was published in The Lancet and filmed by BBC, where we take 90 kids, give a third of them high doses of vitamins and minerals, um, a third a dummy pill, and a third nothing, and measure their IQ. And the IQ went up 10 points on the vitamins, three points on the placebo, so a seven-point difference, which is a massive difference. And by the way, I should tell you right now, that is the level of decline that is happening now in IQ in every generation. Yes, our intelligence is reducing and our brain size is reducing. 
So that's kind of yeah. what got me into this. And even though my background, in essence, uh, is psychology, really, when you get nutrition right for your brain, you've got it right for your body. Yeah, gosh, that's incredible. Because you'd think that our brains would be expanding and growing now with all the sort of no. Uh, we we actually had a brain size of one point four nine kgs uh, about ten thousand years ago, and now it's about one point three five. So I think we could say there's at least a ten percent decrease in our brain size, and it actually correlates with uh, moving onto land-based food. So many people are not aware of this, but there's incontrovertible evidence that when we split from uh, gorillas and bonobos and chimpanzees about six and a half uh, million years ago, so in other words, 98 point something percent of our genome is exactly the same, uh, but we split six and a half million years ago and around 100 or 150,000 years ago, we have Homo sapiens with a very, very large brain, three times that of, of our ape ancestors. Uh, so the big question has been why? And the answer, to cut it short, is that we became semi-aquatic apes. We lived on the water's edge in estuaries and rivers. We waded and we ate a lot of marine foods. Mm. We became upright through wading. It changed. We developed the layer of insulating fat that many of us have too much of now, uh, which you only see in, in the sea mammals. And it was all about brain development. Um, early, the first few years of life, for humans is all about brain development. And the two, the two clinchers for this theory, really, uh, I mean, there's actually 20, but there's two clinchers. And one is that babies are born with a vernix. That's a waxy waterproof layer, the thing that's washed off when your baby is born. And uh, that is only found in sea mammals. It's identical to that of a seal and a sea lion. So that the mammals like the seals and the dolphins who've eventually decided to go to the sea, because that's where the rich food uh, was. We were heading that way. Mm. The second clincher is what's called the extoses in the ear, or the diver's ear. ENT guys know that simply by looking in your ear, they'll tell you, ah, you spend a lot of time in the water diving. Because the more you dive, there's a little bony protrusion that comes out, uh, which actually protects you from the pressure. So a dolphin, for example, has actually blocked their ears off. They can't hear, they just use sonar. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of all the way. Uh, while a land-based animal doesn't have these exotoses. Yeah. Uh, but these semi-aquatic animals who are in and out, um, the more time you spend in, the more these protrusions, even the wrinkly fingers that yeah. you get in water is an evolutionary adaptation to catch fish. And so we, when we moved away from eating that very rich diet of... Yeah. of Omega-3 and fish, and that's in yeah. shellfish, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think that, so the brain hasn't carried on growing? Or No, I think what that's what happened 10,000 years ago. We moved to land-based agriculture, mm. uh, so we're no longer fishermen. I, I spend a lot of my time in Wales, and on the Gower Peninsula, they found this 40,000-year-old Homo sapiens, and when they analysed the bones, one quarter of its diet was seafood. And if you think about that, given that they were expending at least double the calories that we would today, mm -hmm. you know, because we've got cars and fridges and all the rest of it, uh, that, you know, if they had double the calories that we do, it would mean that half of our entire diet would need to be seafood yeah. to equal the same intake of nutrients that they had. So the real challenge we have, and it's literally, it's as important as the whole, you know, global warming challenge, mm -hmm 
is that um, our brain size is going down, our IQ is going down, our mental health problems are escalating mm. up. Um, as the population increases with less fish reserves, um, we're going to be in a total mess. And unless we agriculturalize the oceans mm -hmm. and clean them up, um, it's we're going to be in a terrible state. In Japan, they're starting to do this. What they're doing is they're planting sea grasses mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that we would like to, you know, re-nourish the soil, uh, which is so terribly important. They're putting in artificial reef structures, which encourage back the crabs and the mussels and the periwinkles and the vongolet and the snappers and all the fish. And they're planting um, thousands of acres of uh, seaweed and kelp, which, by the way, captures carbon. So all of those shells are capturing carbon. So unless we really acknowledge the total essentiality of a marine food diet, we will gradually lose our humanity. We are, as uh, Professor Michael Crawford, uh, really an expert in this, we are heading for an idiocracy. We will end up as a race of morons unless we really understand that our brains are totally dependent on marine foods. And I'm talking here mainly, but not only, uh, by omega-3, uh, the particular kind called DHA, mm -hmm. which you cannot get in chia or flax seeds. Um, and that forms about 98% of the critical structure of the brain. Yeah, and I suppose the issue, like, as you just mentioned, is to make that a sustainable source yes. of supplements or nutrients for us. Yes. Because no, you can't be, we can't all eat enough prawns and shellfish and mussels. No, unless we really move to, you know, to growing them, agriculturalizing yeah. them and so on. We've got to, uh, you can get DHA from seaweed. So vegans, for example, can actually get supplements of DHA. And it's terribly important. Uh, Professor Michael Crawford, who's the head of the Institute of Brain Chemistry and uh, works at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, has discovered something quite remarkable. And that is that when a pregnant woman has a lack of omega-3 DHA, um, they actually produce more of a fat called oleic acid, uh, which is very similar to what's in olive oil. And that oleic acid is a poor substitute for building their baby's brain. It's actually like, you know, wadding. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so if you measure, if you look at the brain of, a, of an infant whose mother has not got enough DHA, they just don't have that density of neuronal connections. Babies are making a million connections a second, you know, in that yeah. early part of life. One of the extraordinary things that I've been researching in the last few years is that we're basically like a hybrid car. Mm. Our cells can either run on glucose from carbohydrates, uh, or they can run on something called ketones, which are made in the liver from fat. And you can think of ketones as five-star fuel and glucose as five-star fuel. And if you take a brain cell, a neuron, uh, and you give it glucose or ketones, it actually prefers ketones. And one of the reasons why babies are born fat, which is not true, for example, for a, a sheep, um, and also why breast milk is very fatty uh, is that babies are deriving more of their brain power energy. 75% of all the energy in the food that they eat is going to the brain. And um, they're using ketones even more than glucose to build this phenomenal connections, these networks of, of neurons. 
And that is our humanity. I mean, that is the difference between us and apes. In the 80s, I started to campaign to eat a low glycemic load mm -hmm. diet or a low GL diet, which means eating foods that stabilize your blood sugar. And we even knew then that if you eat too much carbs and too much sugar, the body has to make a lot of insulin. Insulin takes the sugar out of the blood. It's very dangerous to have high sugar in the blood and puts it either to your cells to make energy or if you have too much into storage as fat. So insulin is a fat storing hormone. The more carbs you eat, the more insulin you make. And I sort of campaigned on that and wrote lots of books, mm, low GL diet yeah. Bible, low GL diet cookbook, etc., etc. And then a few years ago, uh, my uh, friend and award-winning medical journalist, Jerome Byrne, started to become the kind of journalist spokesman for people doing ketogenic diets, very high fat, very low carbs. Mm. And they also started to sort of demonize carbs. They used to have no bread, no rice, no pasta, no nothing. So in effect, I challenged Jerome to a duel. I said, what can you do with a high fat, ketogenic, low carb diet that I can't do with my low glycemic load diet, which does have carbs, not too many, and the right kind. So you'd have the brown rice rather than the white rice mm -hmm. and the right portion of it. Yeah. That's what I had for dinner last night. And um, we got a contract from Little Brown to write a book called The Hybrid Diet, mm -hmm. the idea that we can run on electric or petrol or ketones or glucose. And then what started to emerge out of the end of that exploration, and this usually is the way, uh, is, is the realization that there's something magical that can happen when you switch. Uh, so you switch off your carb engine mm -hmm. and yeah. switch on your ketone engine. And for most of us, running on ketones is something we've never done. So uh, we're talking here about uh, getting the ketone engine out of the basement, dusting it off. And when you fast, you switch over to running on ketones because you burn your body fat. And what started to emerge was that you can, that there's a tremendous benefit in total fasting after about three days of nothing but water, which is that the body switches off growth signals and switches on repair signals. And the repair process is called autophagy or the Americans say autophagy, autophagy self-eating. And what happens is these little things called phagophores whiz around your cells, gobbling up parasites, viruses, bacteria, cancer cells. So switching on autophagy is very good for cancer. And they also gobble up all your damaged energy factories, the mitochondria. And then there was a, a lovely man called Professor Walter Longo. And he discovered that if you do five days on 800 calories without too much protein, no animal protein, no meat, or dairy, particularly dairy products, switch off autophagy and switch on growth. Think about right, it. Yeah. Breast milk, you know, is yeah. designed to make you grow. Uh, he found that he could get an even better autophagy effect than total fasting. Right. And there are certain foods and certain nutrients like vitamin C that trigger it even more. So I, I researched this and uh, created a five-day program where every single thing that goes in your mouth, be it a supplement or a drink or a food or whatever, is triggering autophagy, took a group, a group of people, um, 17 people, down to my 
farm, my, my barns in, in, in Wales. Which look beautiful, by the way. Uh, they are. I mean, they, yeah. were, Amazing. they were built for these kind of retreats because yeah. I've, I've always longed for a place where I could do this. And uh, yes, I think we lost um, 38 kilos, you know, between the group as such. So people were losing five kilos. That's people who needed to. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is that this five-day process, which you can think of a bit like putting your car in for a service mm -hmm. every yeah. now and again yeah. in animals, has reversed autoimmune diseases. Yeah. Now, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, uh, type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes are the, the small percentage, about 5% of diabetics, who no longer have the cells in the pancreas called beta cells that make insulin. It's considered irreversible. They have to inject insulin. But in animal studies, uh, where these animals were put on this five-day process, five days on, 10 days off, four times, they ended up remaking beta cells, remaking insulin, reprogramming their immune system out of autoimmunity. And that's what got me very excited. Yeah, and I've got quite a few people now with autoimmune diseases who are doing the five-day diet. I, I, we can't really report back. It's very, very new. It came out in June. I don't think any of them have done it four times yet. Mm -hmm. um, but one lady, a doctor actually, with type 1 diabetes and a pump uh, that tells her how much insulin she needs. So after, after three days, her pump switches off. She needs no more insulin. Uh, but that's not totally surprising because when you switch on to running on ketones, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't really have the glucose. But we've been measuring on our retreats blood and breath, ketones, glucose. So we literally measure. Yeah. And we get everyone into this new metabolism state of ketosis in 24 hours. And sometimes people get a little bit wobbly on day two or three, but everyone feels amazing on day four and then five. Yeah, um, and what I found interesting about it, as opposed to other fasting um, diets, which obviously there is the benefit of the fasting, is the, the sort of detoxification, but where you were adding in, I think it was vitamin C and soluble fiber, so any of the toxins that your body starts to release were then also getting cleared up. Yeah. And so people weren't feeling like total shit, which is No, I mean, it used nice. to be called the healing crisis right. after two or three days. But I, I, I think it's just a crisis because when your body starts to burn off fat and detoxify, um, you, you and the liver needs nutrients in order to detoxify. Mm. So, yes, you're quite right. Um, there's a big emphasis on putting in all those detox nutrients. And it's, I mean... The fascinating thing is that, you know, one can talk about this as a weight loss diet. That's that's definitely a s sort of side effect. But what I found uh, fascinating is that people detox not just physically, but also psychologically. And I think that when we, uh, I mean, the basic idea is when the body is exposed to toxins, it, it and it can't get rid of them, it stores them in fat. So when you start to burn off your fat, and by the way, I actually now have to sort of quite consciously gain weight <laughs> in between because I was gaining weight. I think I gained 19 pounds, you know, in the lockdown. It was COVID-19. <laughs> for the It's 19th. like a community service there. Anybody Absolutely. that didn't gain weight was really like exactly. very unpopular. <laughs> well, I was also probably drinking a bit too much whiskey with the frustration that we're letting people die totally unnecessarily. Yeah. And we can talk about that. Yeah. But um, what I found with a five-day diet is, I mean, I lost, I lost um, 
10 pounds in the last round, you can lose it just like yeah. that. And by the way, we're measuring body fat. So yeah. it is actually fat that's being lost. But I think also we sort of, in a way, we have our sort of psychological toxins as well. Mm -hmm. So something very interesting happens when you go onto a super clean, you know, state mm. like this. So certainly on our retreats, we find people are, um, are really, you know, making breakthroughs in their life, not just in their weight. I mean, I, I've got two retreats. That's a seven-day retreat. And then I have a three-day retreat, which is called Total Health Transformation, which is really everything that I've learned about how to be 100% healthy, not just nutrition. And I, I prefer doing this now. I don't really see clients anymore because I know that if I can take someone away and be with them for three days and sort of work on every level, it creates a quantum leap that mm. usually sticks. Uh, and that's what I'm interested in is how to kind of wake people up to... I mean, most people are so um, underpowered. Mm. Uh, they have no idea. And if you get your nutrition right, uh, your energy level is phenomenal. You may sleep a little bit less, but you're just going to be full of energy. I remember uh, when I used to sit with Dr. Abram Hoffer seeing patients with schizophrenia, the first question he always asked was, um, what are you going to do when you get well? Yeah. What plans have you made for when you get well? Really? And what? And so going back to that, because that's really fascinating, what, was that B vitamins? That it I, was. I Originally it was niacin, vitamin B3. Right. And, uh, and uh, by the way, B3 niacin uh, in its pure form makes you blush. It's a vasodilator. So if you take 100 milligrams, uh, you blush and you go red and hot and a little itchy. Uh, it's a bit like sunburn. And then, and then there's an incredible muscle relaxant effect afterwards. Don't do it on a bus. But we use this on our retreat. We've got a steam shower, like a steam room. And we have a hot tub. We stick Epsom salts in the yeah, hot tub. Yeah, love them. And uh, I encourage people to try niacin. And we've had, you know, one or two people get a headache. You take the niacin, it goes. And when the niacin is wearing off, it's quite extraordinary. You get this phenomenal muscle relaxant effect. You might fall asleep and feel brilliant. Niacin works. But then um, Dr. Abram Hoffer's work started to move towards a process called methylation, which is dependent upon other B vitamins, B6, folic acid or folate, that's in greens, folic acid is in greens, and B12. And B12 is a major problem for older people. So many people don't absorb B12 sufficiently. It's, it's a major driver of Alzheimer's. So, and also vitamin C, because by then he kind of plugged into vitamin C and actually turned Linus Pauling on to um, vitamin C. And there is a story which I, I would love to tell uh, as to how he got started on the niacin. Because there was another uh, psychiatrist from London uh, called Dr. Humphrey Osmond. And he had a theory that schizophrenics were hallucinating uh, because they were producing an endogenous hallucinogen in their brain. And in those days, it was all about Freud. And... Uh, so no one wanted to pay any attention to this radical idea. So he emigrated to Canada, met Dr. Abramhofer, both of them are superb chemists, and they started to catalogue the experience of so-called schizophrenia. And they created what's called the Hoffer-Osmond um, Diagnostic, or Disperception Scale. Because people are having disperceptions, they're not seeing things as they are, they're hearing mm. 
voices or you know, there's a whole lot of dispossessions. And they noticed that the dispossessions were remarkably similar to dispossessions that Native American Indians um, uh, report when they take peyote, which is a hallucinogenic cactus. So they then collected blood and urine samples from schizophrenics and Native Americans on peyote. And they discovered a chemical that is always excreted uh, in someone when they take peyote in the urine and is never excreted in normal people, or hardly ever, and is excreted in 73% of schizophrenics urine. Wow. So they reverse engineered it and worked out that adrenaline was being turned into a compound uh, that was actually making them hallucinate. And they then worked out that B vitamins would be the antidote. Wow. By the way, on this journey, they had to identify exactly what the chemical structure of yeah. the hallucinogen was, which was mescaline in the peyote. And uh, they produced pure mescaline, gave it to Aldous Huxley, uh, who wrote the book, The Doors of Perception, from William Blake's quote. Wow. Yeah. And Jim Morrison read the book and called his band The Doors. Oh, really? I love that. <laughs> I loved all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, That's I my th- teenage reading, all yeah, of that stuff. I thought you might sort of enjoy that. <laughs> but basically, these B vitamins, and, and just to sort of put one more piece together for you, is that when you make the brain, a neuron in the brain, you actually have to attach those omega-3 DHA, that's the stuff from the fish, to something called phospholipids, which are in eggs and also seafood. And the attaching is done by methylation, which depends on B vitamins. So to build a brain, you've got to have DHA, you've got to have phospholipids, and you've got to have healthy methylation. And that's determined by the blood level of something called homocysteine, which turns out to be the biggest predictor of Alzheimer's. One of my great teachers has been Professor David Smith, Emeritus Professor of Pharmacology at Oxford. And uh, his research group identified what Alzheimer's was which is a degeneration of a central area of the brain by the hippocampus. And they developed the scan for that area. So nowadays, if, you're, if, if someone is losing their memory, they're diagnosed with dementia. They may be dementia probable Alzheimer's because two thirds of dementia is Alzheimer's, but you really can only be diagnosed with Alzheimer's if you have a scan of what's called the medial temporal mm-hmm. lobe as developed by David Smith and his group. He then found um, that there was a remarkable difference between the brains of people who died of Alzheimer's and those who did not. And it was to do with the blood level of something called homocysteine, which any GP can measure, but very, very few do. There's been 24,000 studies on homocysteine. They really should. And if you can't remember it, just think of Gay Chapel, homocysteine. And then you might remember the test. Because if your memory's going, you won't remember the test. So that's why I give you that mnemonic. And then what he did was he took a group of people with pre-Alzheimer's and measured their homocysteine, gave them either high-dose B vitamins, B6, B12, folate, or placebo. And when I mean high-dose, vitamin B12 is very poorly absorbed by a lot of people over age 60. The RDA, which stands for the Ridiculous Dietary Arbitrary, is two micrograms. He gave 500 micrograms. And he measured the rate of their brain shrinkage, both the total brain and the area of Alzheimer's. And he measured their memory. 
effects. And basically, at the end of a year, there was 53% less shrinkage of the total brain on the B vitamins. And there was also about nine times less shrinkage of the Alzheimer's areas of the brain and virtually no further memory loss. Mm. Now, he then, he didn't give omega-3, but he had blood samples. So he measured the participants' omega-3 level. And he found that the third with the highest omega-3 had not 53% less shrinkage, but 73% less shrinkage, and not virtually no memory loss, zero memory loss. In fact, 30% in that group were no longer clinically rated as having dementia, right? 73% less shrinkage. But the people who had low omega-3 in their blood, the B vitamins didn't work. So you've got to have both Mm. the B vitamins and the omegas. Now, to put this into context, um, the best drug to date has produced 2% less brain shrinkage versus 73%. Gosh. Right, has had no clinical dementia benefit versus 30% uh, with a clinical dementia rating of zero. And right now, we could confidently say that a quarter of all Alzheimer's could be eliminated simply by doing what we're doing in our charity, foodforthebrain.org. We have an online cognitive function test. Anyone can do it. It's free. If you don't score well, you get a letter to go to your doctor. The doctor should measure your homocysteine level. Mm -hmm. If it is above 11, you should be given the B vitamins. And if that became standard policy, we would eliminate one quarter of all Alzheimer's. And the only reason it isn't being done is there's no money in it. You cannot patent B vitamins. One of of the uh, big pharma companies came to David Smith and said, if this was a patentable drug, this is a double-figure billion market. I was going to ask you, actually, what what are the biggest challenges that you have to overcome with your work? And I would say that was probably... I I don't want to answer for you, but... Yeah, I mean, that's frustrating. (laughs) Ultimately, yes. And people are dying right now. I mean, at least two-thirds of all deaths from COVID are unnecessary. Mm. Um, And that's to do with vitamin C. So my teacher, Linus Pauling, who was uh, two Nobel Prizes, 48 PhDs, he proved in the mid-70s that you can effectively eliminate a virus with enough vitamin C. And in fact, I think probably the, I've been attacked at different times. I've been burgled, followed, vilified, sued, you know, etc. Um, so I'm sort of... Going, oh, for trying to help people feel better. <clears throat> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you evil man. Absolutely, evil man. And I remember <laughs> one, you? a particularly nasty fellow called uh, Ben Goldacre, who used to have a column in The Guardian. Um, he had a go at me a few years ago uh, because I, had, I was reporting on exceptionally good studies Uh, by Linus Pauling and his group, which had shown that uh, vitamin C inactivates the HIV virus, as it does every virus, Mm -hmm. uh, in in human T-cells infected with with HIV, and way better than AZT, which at the time was the the main drug. Anyway, it turned out in my book, I, I hadn't referenced all the studies and not the one that compared it to AZT, so he had a go at me. A couple of times in The Guardian and three times, and it really was enough. The, the researchers wrote to The Guardian and said, everything Patrick Colford is saying is absolutely true. Mm. You know, please stop. Where we are at now is in, in 1747, James Lind, 
uh, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that eating limes or lemons would cure scurvy. Mm -hmm. And uh, two million people died of scurvy, sailors. And that was ignored for 50 years. The Navy didn't implement the policy of limes for sailors for 50 years, and probably a few hundred thousand people died simply by ignoring what was undeniable science. Linus Pauling did the same thing for viruses. The front cover of his book on vitamin C and colds says clearly that we, we can all protect ourselves to a very, very large extent by vitamin C. Uh, and here we are uh, in COVID times. And what I, I just got in front of me, we sent it to the uh, journal a couple of days ago, uh, together with a number of top professors in emergency medicine, nutrition, pharmacology, uh, immunology, uh, is a review on vitamin C for COVID. And it also refers to the first randomized controlled trial in China, which is basically found in the most critically ill people in the ICUs that they were studying, who were on ventilators and into the drip either went vitamin C, 12 grams twice a day, 24 grams in total, or sterile water. And there were 68% less deaths in the vitamin C group, uh, a massive drop in inflammation markers that you measure in the blood, and something called IL-6 or interleutin in 6. The level was up in the 150s for those on the placebo and at 19 for those on the vitamin C, a massive improvement in oxygenation. Now, to put this into context, the in June, when they announced this apparently new discovery, which everyone who treats sepsis already knew about three years ago, um, is dexamethasone, the, the steroid drug. Your adrenal glands produced a steroid hormone called cortisol. And when you're in an emergency situation, and a viral attack will trigger this, um, your body would normally produce cortisol, which is an anti-inflammatory. Um, the adrenal glands store vitamin C. It's up to 100 times higher, the amount of vitamin C in your adrenal glands than other organs. And when under attack, your body will raise uh, blood levels of vitamin C by 10 or even maybe 20-fold. The vitamin C helps the cortisol to work. If you are out, if you've run out of vitamin C, which viruses do, they consume or expend vitamin C, the cortisol won't work. And you're going to die unless you get exogenous, that is intravenous steroids with intravenous vitamin C. Wow. You so do both. Nobody needs to die. So the, the intensive care units who are using both intravenous vitamin C and steroids and also anticoagulants have reported no deaths in anyone who doesn't already have an end-stage disease like mm -hmm. liver cancer or something and over 85. So we were posting all the intensive care units in Britain about 42% uh, of those you know in ICU die and these guys were posting about 5%. With intravenous vitamin C steroids. Now that steroid study that we heard about in June, apparently Britain's biggest breakthrough, dexamethasone, that was the difference in mortality of 23% mortality in those on dexamethasone and 26% on the placebo. So we're talking about a 3% yeah, difference. It's not a huge amount, right? is it? I'm talking about a 68% difference. Mm. 
just in the same way that when we were talking about Alzheimer's, I was talking about a yeah. 73% reduction in brain shrinkage versus the best drug so far, 2%. Yeah. So don't underestimate the power of these nutrients. And the only reason that vitamin C hasn't you know, been covered, and by the way, it's extraordinary how the media just blocked on this, is because it is a massive threat to big pharma. Yeah. If we start to use vitamin C uh, in the way that it should be used, we don't really need a vaccine. Doesn't yeah. mean you can't have a vaccine, but you know, if you can make this disease yeah. non-life-threatening, then the pressure is off. And of course, the drug companies are struggling to find an antiviral drug or something mm. that will work. And so far, they've all failed. Of course, they know behind the scenes the power of vitamin C. And thus, it's being suppressed. Two recent studies, one in Barcelona, measured 18 of their ICU critical patients for vitamin C. 17 of them had undetectable levels at the level that you would find in somebody with scurvy. Another one in America measured um, their critical patients and they found, again, really low vitamin C, but a massive difference between those who survived and those who did not survive. The ones that were not surviving had the lowest vitamin C level, again, at least half at the level of scurvy. So people are dying right now for the very simple reason that they've got a virally induced, if you like, scurvy, and the, the whole immune system cannot function and that is why at the sharp end, you need intravenous vitamin C. But if I ever get sick, and I'm pretty certain I had COVID, um, I took one gram an hour. Yeah. And the, so the minute you get symptoms, this, is, this can just save your life, but certainly make it easier. The minute you get any symptoms of any cold or flu, take three grams of vitamin C. And that would be like 3,000... 3,000 milligrams. Milligrams, yeah. yeah. So when you go to the health food store, most of the pills are 1,000 milligrams. Yes. You take three, you know, two to four, it doesn't matter, but take a loading dose mm -hmm. immediately and then take a gram an hour Yeah. and don't quit. Um, obviously, when you go to bed and sleep, I, I might take a couple of grams before I go to sleep mm. and if I wake up in the night, I'll take another couple. But basically, don't quit. Uh, it's water-soluble. It goes in and out of your body. You want to get the blood level high. Don't quit until your symptoms are gone. And in my case, um, I had a day, and this is back in June, where I started to feel you know, tired, a bit achy. Next day, it really kicks in. All my muscles are aching. My temperature's through the roof. I've got a fever. My throat's uh, you know, kicking in. It always hits my sinuses. They're bad. And um, you know, I cannot function. I'm. This is flu mm -hmm. whether it's covid flu or another flu you know but it was june i i kind of suspected probably it was covid so i did this my vitamin c uh, also has zinc in it because mm -hmm. high dose zinc uh, also works and it also has uh, black elderberry in it which also works and i just did that gram an hour and then at about 18 hours um suddenly cold sweat fever's over you know it's over yeah, and, and why do you think, so with vitamin C, we do, animals produce it. All animals make vitamin but C. But we don't. So why do you think that is that we don't? And I listened to you talking to one of your um, colleagues who was saying that they thought there might be a way to switch on that. Yeah, that well, basically, function. yeah, basically ever since the very beginning of oxygen-based life forms, 
Um, we, and, and in essence, glucose, if you like, is burnt by oxygen to make energy. And in that process, you make exhaust fumes, which are oxidants. And uh, ultimately, the reason we die is because of oxidants and oxidation. So since the very beginning of oxygen metabolism, there had to be an antioxidant, which is vitamin C. It's actually made from glucose. So a goat, my body weight, will make um, about 13 grams a day. One gram is 20 oranges. So a goat makes 13 grams from glucose. So it sacrifices a whole lot of its energy giving glucose from grass to make vitamin C. That goat can make up to 100 grams when under attack, stress or virus. Wow. All animals do this. Yeah. And um, somewhere in our distant past, there are, a, and this is you know, obviously before six and a half million years ago, much older, um, all primates lost the ability to make vitamin C. So did guinea pigs and the campybara, which is another jungle rodent, and uh, the fruit-eating bats. Most bats don't make vitamin C. And there, there's a couple of other, there's a, there's a couple of fish, Amazonian fish. And what we think happens is that basically, imagine some early, you know, monkey or whatever, uh, has a genetic mutation where they lose the ability to turn the glucose into vitamin C. Now, as long as they're eating loads of fruit, you know, and vegetation, they can get it from the outside. So suddenly they've got all this extra glucose for energy. So they become like, you know, top monkey. Yeah. And they gradually, it's their bloodline that takes over. And before long, all monkeys, you know, or all apes in this context, uh, yes, can't make vitamin C. Now, the monkeys, by the way, about a seventh of our size, will eat about 700 milligrams a day. A gorilla will eat four and a half grams of vitamin C a day. I take two grams mm. every single day, 40 supermarket oranges. So if you were going to at least do what a gorilla does, you, you know, you've either yeah. got to eat tons, yeah. uh, and of course you get too much glucose, so you get fat. Mm. So ideally you have to exercise loads and eat loads of fruit, yeah. or you supplement it. And Linus Pauling, I mean, a genius mind. Mm. Uh, in, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, he almost cracked DNA. I, I, he proved... Um, well, his first sort of major discovery was how, um, how molecular bonds are created, the nature of the chemical bond. That is the beginning of all modern chemistry. So tick, number yeah. one. Good uh, start, yeah. Yeah, number two, I mean, for example, everyone knew ether made you unconscious, nobody knew how. So he thought about the chemistry of unconsciousness, worked it out, that's modern anaesthetics, tick number two. Uh, he, was, he took over Einstein's campaign against nuclear bomb testing. Yeah. And because of that, he was labelled a communist, had his passport confiscated, desperately wanted to get to Oxford to meet Madeleine, the French scientist, who had some experiments which might give a clue to the structure of DNA. But he was grounded. He couldn't leave America. And Watson and Crick, who got the Nobel Prize for it, Francis Crick, by the way, was on acid when he saw the actual structure. And that's a fact. Um, said if Pauling had had this data, he would have beaten us to it. Yeah. So he guessed slightly wrong. He he almost got the Nobel Prize for DNA. He but he got two of his own. He, yeah, he got one for chemistry and one for yeah. peace. Yeah. On the day that they um, uh, passed the global treaty banning nuclear bomb 
testing. Gosh, lovely. Which has since, you know, now people have started testing nuclear bombs. You know, we are going backwards. And uh, then he worked out how genes cause disease. Yeah. The whole beginning of yeah, genetic medicine. so early on, yeah. He then worked out how the environment affects genes. So this is what we call epigenetics mm. or genetic expression. Uh, for example, um, half of women who have the BRCA gene get breast cancer and half of them don't. Why? We know that soya actually dampens down the BRCA gene and dairy products probably crank it up. That's epigenetics, mm. the effect of the environment on the genes, which actually was where Darwin got to. Um, but most people don't realize this. It's called the conditions of existence. And we can think of it as nutrition and mm. the environment. So, I mean, extraordinary. Then he comes across this very, very simple molecule, vitamin C, made from glucose. There's just five enzyme changes from glucose to vitamin C. And he notices interesting things. Number one, 10 milligrams stops you dying of scurvy, yet 100,000 milligrams, 100 grams, is safe. It's not toxic. Now, if you drink 10 liters of water in 10 minutes, you're dead. Mm. So vitamin C is incredibly non-toxic. Second, he notices that animals that make vitamin C, in effect, don't get cancers, and also they don't get viral diseases. So he spent the last 39 years of his life wow. studying nothing but the chemistry of vitamin C and viruses and vitamin C and cancer. And this is the sharpest mind that has ever been known. Mm. His science was impeccable. And we've ignored it. All his other discoveries, you know, have just changed things. Yeah, so he was lauded for all his other exactly. breakthroughs. Yeah. But not not so much for this. No. And uh, he said it's I, I normally expect my ideas are attacked and within ten years they, you know, come in. But not in medicine. And the reason is because we have a mafia that's mm. running medicine, mm. unfortunately. The pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. It is outrageous that right now we are guided by someone like Sir Patrick Valance, or I call him surveillance. You know, who comes straight out of sales and marketing for GlaxoSmithKline, eight years there, knighted for selling lots of drugs. Yeah. And here we are listening to him and his advice. And anybody with half a brain, and unfortunately there's a lot of people with less than half a brain, must realize that the agenda is being massively manipulated mm, of course. in the hope of, you know, uh, vaccines. Yeah. so much money in vaccines, so much whether money. they work or not. I mm. mean, I was watching the news the other night and they were talking about a phase three trial on a vaccine and the line that really got me, it said, even before the first needle went in, British government had bought six million doses, you know? Yeah, incredible. I mean, the money that's changing hands right now is extraordinary. Mm. Now, what if... You did something really simple, and that's why in the first week of lockdown, or the first two weeks, I sat down and I wrote a book called Flu Fighters. It's fully referenced. It's very clear. It tells you what to do. Zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, foods to eat, the whole lot. But what if, if everyone knew that when you get a cold or flu symptoms, you take a gram an hour of vitamin C, ideally 60 milligrams of zinc, my vitamin C pills have three milligrams of zinc in them. 
the point being that if you took 20, you'd have 60 milligrams yeah. of zinc. And in almost all circumstances, you will be symptom-free within 24 or 48 hours. If you did that, the chances are you will not convert into the critical phase of COVID because nobody dies from the virus infection. What's happening is this virus replicates very fast and if you don't nail it reasonably quickly, you have a lot of dead virus particles in your blood, in your lungs. And the immune system then reacts against the dead virus particles, which causes what's being nicknamed cytokine storm, a massive over-inflammation reaction, a bit like a fire out of control. And it's that not the virus, but the body's overreaction to the dead virus particles that's killing people. And that is why in that phase, you need the high dose vitamin C plus the steroids plus the anticoagulants. So if everyone knew to take a gram an hour of vitamin C when they got sick, probably nobody or very few would ever convert into the dangerous state. Mm -hmm. And then if in the dangerous state, if they were treated properly, the death rate would be pretty much non-existent and then we just learn to live with it mm. like we have with every other viral disease we're just interrupting this episode to bring you a short message from a wonderful charity that we're supporting i am really happy to say that this podcast is working with the cross river gorilla project to raise awareness of the critically endangered cross river gorilla and support the local rainforest communities with only about 300 of these great apes remaining in the world this comes at a crucial time the Cross River Gorilla Project would love you to sign up to their website, which is free, and help share their story. You can also follow them on Instagram at Cross River Gorilla and see how you can make a difference. In the 18th and 19th century, we had 14 viral pandemics oh. that killed in the thousands. Okay. So in the first 20 years of this century, we've had 11. Oh gosh, that's, that's extraordinary. I'm, you know, I'm talking here about yeah. SARS and MERS. Yeah, and Ebola. Ebola and all that sorts of stuff. And I mean, funny enough, when, when Ebola struck, I was called in by the Sierra Leone task force and I said, vitamin C, it's obvious, intravenous vitamin C, mm. get these people on intravenous vitamin C. And funny enough, I met a man the other day, Dr. Robert Fakirk, and he was actually out there uh, trying to do this. And unfortunately, once the farmer moved in, they just said, we're not doing it. Well, we won't do it. So it never really got tested in the same way that HIV and vitamin C never really got mm. tested. It's been blocked, actively blocked. That's the point. And, um, and you know, Linus Pauling really put the C in colds, and we are going to put the C in mm. COVID. By the way, just in case you don't know, what happened in China, uh, and it's the only reason why this study I was telling you about with vitamin C is a bit weak. They needed 140 people for the statistics to be really strong. Um, but what happened was on the 2nd of February, the Chinese government shipped 50 tons of vitamin C into Wuhan, which is 50 million doses. They gave every hospital worker, every hospitalized patient, and everyone in ICU high dose vitamin C. And uh, within a matter of weeks, uh, the whole thing was under control. So they, they did two things. They did a very tight lockdown and they shipped in vitamin C. They knew vitamin C worked from SARS and they started the randomized control trial. So when I spoke to Professor Xiong Peng at the uh, Zongnan Hospital at the University of, of Wuhan, uh, he had results at the end of April already. And uh, he said, the real trouble is we've run out of patients. 
We've had 54, um, and we haven't had a single patient you know, for the last couple of weeks. We've got no more no, to add. Yeah. So they had to end the trial early, slightly underpowered you know, in terms of its number of mm. people. So China now, the Chinese medical, it's called the Shanghai Medical Association, standard policy for treating COVID is high-dose vitamin C. Well, you'd sort of want to be there right now, though, yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, that's standard yeah. policy. Yeah. Okay? If you got sick, yeah. and or you someone you knew was sick, and they w- ended up in hospital, could you say, please, can you give them high doses of vitamin, intravenous well, vitamin you C? you can, and I think it's going to spread quite fast. Mm. We don't yet know the right dose. So the Chinese trial was 24 grams over 24 hours. Um, the first ICU that I heard of in the UK using vitamin C was Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Very, very bright scientist uh, called Dr. Marcella Vizcachipi. And uh, she wanted to give two grams uh, every 12 hours, four grams, but uh, uh, she ended up giving one gram every 12 hours. And uh, so that's what she did. I, I, I think it's too low. Mm. And uh, you don't really know until you start testing. So we want people to be tested. Uh, but I had a friend and uh, he's Indian, has asthma, and um, he ended up having this cytokine storm. So he's put into a London hospital. And uh, very kindly, she rang up the guy in charge there and said, stick him on three grams intravenous vitamin C. And he really recovered okay, quickly. And was discharged good. within two days. So it's starting to spread in the intensive care unit world. Uh, my research paper, one of the authors is Professor Ian Whitaker. He's an expert in emergency medicine. He's one of Britain's leading experts in burns. Uh, you know, burns is a, a, a major sort of area where you need this sort of critical care. And they've learned in treating burn victims that intravenous vitamin C really works. So I think, I would guess at this point in time, there's probably a dozen intensive care units using vitamin C. And I just found a, a test, a, a vitamin C um, urine dipstick. You yes. just dip it in the urine and you can tell if someone is acutely vitamin C deficient. So I'm trying to uh, get enough uh, because sometimes in these intensive care units, they're, they're limited on how much blood they can actually test, but you can always dip a stick in the yeah. urine and find out. And I, I'm sure that if this starts to be done, they'll find that the majority of their critical patients are vitamin C deficient. And the treatment for vitamin C deficiency is intravenous vitamin C. Yeah. And that's really the logjam. So on our campaign, vitamin C for COVID.com, uh, we want people to sign up. We want doctors. We want emergency medicine people. We want members of the public. We want NHS frontline workers. And uh, for example, one of the things we definitely want is the wrongful classification of vitamin C plus COVID or corona. It's classified as false information. So I've had my films, my interviews, my reports on studies on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, shut down uh, or with a big sticker that says false information because the algorithm picks up vitamin C and COVID or corona and shuts down. Gosh. Right. Who, that's ridiculous. That's isn't what it? we're dealing with. Yeah. But um, it's so, because it is, like you said, it's a virus. And if anybody, you know, people know that if you get to feel, starting to feel sick, take some vitamin C. I mean, that's kind of like, it, people do inherently know that. 
about vitamin C? Well, the interesting thing is if you talk to the you know, general member of the public, I mean, most have absolutely no idea that all animals make it. So that, you know, we... No, we, I didn't know that until yeah. recently, so actually. Like that is interesting, thing. yeah. A lot of people, if they say, uh, you know, they say, oh, yes, my granny, she always told me to take vitamin C. Yeah. So when you go back into the 70s and 80s, when Linus Pauling uh, really put vitamin C on the map, people then were much more open. We were much more open to vitamin D and vitamin A and cod liver oil and vitamin C. So I grew up in the, you know, born in the late 50s, 60s, 70s. We were all popping Haliborange, which was vitamin Oh, I a, loved Haliborange. It's my childhood little, yeah. Yeah, Haliborange, cod liver oil. I mean, most people don't realize if you take something like measles, um, it used to kill um, a thousand a year in the 1940s. And it was through nutrition um, that that mortality got driven down to about a hundred a year. And that was even before vaccines came in. Mm. So I'm not saying the vaccines haven't helped. Of course they have. But the biggest, I mean, right now, if you look at the World Health Organization, their, their recommended treatment for measles is high-dose vitamin A. It's much more cost-effective than vaccination yeah. in the third world. So somehow, and I'll, I mean, it's pretty obvious why, but we in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we were becoming conscious about vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D, and all that sort of stuff, and even having policies in and around that. But in the last uh, you know, couple of decades, I mean, a doctor gets nothing on this. Yes, I, I know that at Absolutely medical school. They, don't, they, don't, they just get little side bits on nutrition, nothing. My friend, no. Professor David Smith, yeah. sat in at Oxford, and he was the vice dean of Oxford Medical School. He sat in on the diabetes lecture of the medical students at Oxford, which is considered one of the best places yeah. to train in the world in medicine. He sat in on their diabetes lecture. And at the end of the lecture, I believe it was seven minutes on nutrition, and the lecturer said, that is all you're getting on nutrition in your medical training. Yeah. Seven minutes. So if anybody comes on one of my retreats, for example, or one of my workshops, in that period of time, you are going to learn more than your doctor has learnt on nutrition unless they choose to go off and study it. So they consider the idea, you know, that vitamin C could actually save lives as a ridiculous idea. Supplements have been demonized. And the reason they've been demonized, and I say this after having, you know, campaigned and worked and researched in this field for 45 years now, is very simply because it threatens the money base. Mm. There's no money in a substance that nature has made because you cannot patent it. You can only make significant money by inventing something um, and therefore patenting it. And therefore it has to interrupt something going on in the body. Mm. If at the end of the line for Alzheimer's you end up with B vitamins that lower homocysteine or for viruses with vitamin C, which is the most profound antiviral agent by far, and you can't patent it, nobody wants to know. Yeah, so that you don't get the proper funding for the proper sort of research. We don't get any funding. Yeah. I mean, Professor David Smith, when I tell you about what he's done with Alzheimer's, the obvious thing to do now is a study giving both omega-3 and B. Yes. Now, here is a man who was vice dean of Oxford Medical School. He had 2,000 researchers and teachers working under him. He's the emeritus professor of pharmacology. He's one of the cleanest scientists, uh, one of the top guys in Alzheimer's prevention. He can't get funding. No. 
when the government, I mean, to put it into context, the figures might be old now, but in, in, um, from 1998 to about a few years ago, I looked up the total funding that had been spent on Alzheimer's prevention. Now, I want to point out here that if high blood pressure is a risk factor and you do a study giving high blood pressure pills, that's prevention because you're trying to prevent a risk factor. So mm-hmm. not just nutrition, total money spent on prevention research from the British government, under 200,000. Total money spent on drug research for Alzheimer's, over $60 billion. Yeah. That's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. And these studies, to do them properly, um, cost several million pounds. Mm. And until our government steps up, and, I mean, it's ridiculous that charities like Alzheimer's Society, you know, people are out there with all the best will in the world, running marathons Mm. uh, because their granny died of some terrible disease um, helping to fund drug trials governments are saying we're going to stick another two million into alzheimer's research funding pharmaceutical agencies we've got a revolving door between government science officers big pharma gsk for example britain's you know well now second biggest drug company find billions of dollars in China, in America, in other countries, and fined, by the way, for bribing health officials, uh, you know, yeah, and, no, and, and not fined in the UK. So when the government says, right, we are going to award that vaccine programme to... I mean, the Oxford uh, vaccine is AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca, sorry, that yeah, was the yeah. word I was looking for. And then for. GSK will be in another one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did they, did they AstraZeneca then go, thank you so much, here's five million quid for your... Party. Someone must be benefiting from it like that. Definitely. I mean, in some way, and and how that how that is. I mean, a friend of mine just interviewed the Swedish health minister and said, if one of your health advisors had shares, you know, in a drug company in this space, or was a consultant for, or you know, any financial Mm. ties with vested interests, Mm. what would you do? And they said, fire them. Yeah. We have to have completely independent health advisors. Yeah. I'm struggling to find a single health advisor who isn't easily, you know, connected into this pay chain. And that's kind of what we're in. It's like a, you know, a revolving door between the two. Mm-hmm. And until that somehow, you know, gets broken, we will not be getting proper medicine. We, we do not need, I mean, you know, it, when I was born, maybe one in 12 die of cancer. Now it's over one in three. So we've seen cancer go through the roof. We've seen diabetes go through the roof. Um, you know, we've seen all these diseases that are... That's why, I mean, I've written 44 books, mm. but then it's like, say no to cancer, say no to diabetes, say mm. no Alzheimer's prevention plan, and so on. You can never underestimate the power of eating the right food. And this isn't just a well-balanced diet, because there are nutrients like vitamin C, mm. which we need much more of because we've lost the ability to make it. There are nutrients like B12, which older people need more of because they no longer are able to absorb it effectively. Mm. And for schizophrenia, as you were mentioning. So would that be for all men, uh, psych- Well, no, see, this is the other thing, is that, um, and it's sort of quite a nice kind of roundup. Basically, um, I worked out that there are um, a, a small number, half a dozen, fundamental processes going on in your system 
One is how you balance sugars. We call it glycation. Another is methylation. That's all the B vitamins. The third we can call lipidation or fats. That's the omegas mm-hmm. and the ketones and the phospholipids. The fourth is oxidation. Mm-hmm. That's how we do antioxidants. And that's vitamin C is there. The fifth is, is hydration, which is water. And then the sixth is digestion and absorption, which is where all the microbiome stuff comes in. Now, um, and also you get food intolerances. So I can take a schizophrenic, uh, for example, one girl, Liz, and uh, she was actually gluten intolerant. And when we eliminated gluten, her schizophrenia went. Mm. I can take another schizophrenic and find that their homocysteine level is through the roof. Mm. And when that's lowered with B vitamins, suddenly no more hallucinations. I can take another one. Uh, where they're low in omega-3, and omega-3 makes a really big difference. Mm. Or even possibly being on a ketogenic diet, Mm. because uh, epilepsy and Parkinson's has been treated very effectively with with a ketone diet. I can take another one where it's actually about sugar and Mm. blood sugar balance. So the point is we're not... Diseases are not caused by one thing. Mm. Um, They can be caused by one thing for one person and one Mm. thing... someone else and my total health transformation retreat at least on the nutritional side of things basically you learn how to tune up all those processes we make the foods together that would allow you Mm. to do that and basically once you I've got it on my uh, website patrickholford.com there's a questionnaire that anyone can fill out called the 100% health check Mm -hmm. we have over 100,000 people have done it and it will give you a score for your methylation, your blood sugar, your etc. Yeah. So it finds your weakest link. Mm. And rather than, if you like, treating a disease in a very kind of small way, if you correct the underlying processes, mm. then the diseases go away. Yeah. And that's systems-based science, systems-based medicine. That is the future. Yeah. It's a personalized approach. And that's really what works the future of medicine absolutely is optimum nutrition uh, you know plus good psychological mm. exercise and everything else um, but we seem to have got stuck uh, in this realm of pharmaceutical medicine mm. uh, which is a trillion dollar a year industry yeah. it's got an absolute hold uh, sadly on our medical profession to some extent mm. and also on our governments But I know that we do not need to be dying from all these diseases. Uh, They are unnecessary. Uh, COVID-19 is a wonderful opportunity to wake up um, to the power of nutrition. It takes a tiny bit of intelligence to realize that doing something to boost your own immune system should be very high up on the agenda rather than not even on the agenda. Mm. The only basis for a vaccine is to boost your immune system. The whole basis of a vaccine is if you expose your immune system to the infectious agent, it learns how to respond. So if you believe in boosting your immune system, if you believe in vaccines, mm. you believe in boosting your immune system, then take the time, you know, for example, to read my book, Flu Fighters. What does it say? I can't see it over there. What's the title? How Underneath. to Win the Cold War by Boosting Your Natural Immunity with Non-Toxic Nutrients. Yeah. So, you know, I love that the Cold War, it's great. Yeah, so you know, learn how to do it. Yeah. And uh, the book comes out in China in December, it comes out in Italy you know, next week. Uh, it's yeah. coming out in France very soon. It's going to be good for every year as well, isn't it? It's a book that you're going to always 
go back to because they may yeah. you know often in the summer we all feel quite well and stuff but it's off it's always the change of for me it's always the change of season where one minute you're out walking in your t-shirt the next minute it's freezing or you know so it's and there was a, a the, good time there to- was the point you made which is that even now they're nearly at the point of having an ebola vaccine uh, it's just going through mm. safety just now mm. so the point is you're absolutely right you know we're going to have another viral epidemic mm. and another in our lifetime we've already had 11 we're going to have mm. plenty more uh, but the one thing that does work is boosting your own immune system mm. making sure your vitamin d level is good mm. taking vitamin c when you're sick eating the right foods getting enough zinc this is uh this works for all viruses yes so this is something we can all do. It's terribly empowering. We do not need to live in a state of fear. You know, that what if we get this? Um, you really can do so much to empower yourself. I saw a lovely t-shirt the other day. It said, everything you want is the other side of fear. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to ask you one more thing. Mm. You were obviously working very hard and you have written lots of books. You're writing a book now. You're publishing a book now. How do you... Chill out. It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah, I've got a vegan book coming out in December, Optimum Nutrition for Vegans. Yes, so you which can... will be great, actually, because yeah. that is the thing with vegan. Uh, you do worry that you're not getting enough nutrition. Yeah, no, so. and I mean, there are things like DHA, which you really need to supplement. Yeah. But you can get it from seaweed. Yeah. So, there, you know, I totally endorse and support the idea of plant-based eating. Um, you know, both nutritionally, we should be eating mainly plant-based, but also environmentally mm. and also, you know, ethically. So I understand I'm not a vegan myself. I'm a fishitarian, smoked mm-hmm. salmon vegan, so yeah. to speak. But uh, yeah, if you're going to do it, do it healthily. So mm. that's what that's about. Uh, yeah. How do I chill out? Well, I head off to a little island called Lamu. Oh, I love, I've been there. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, uh, I know. I went there, uh, well, well more than a decade ago. Yeah. No cars, yeah. size of Manhattan, 20,000 people. Yeah. Bought a bit of sand, built a house oh, did you? in exactly. a fishing village. And uh, yeah, I'll be off there quite soon. Oh, have you been to Manda Bay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've and, been there a few and times. And beyond Kiwayu and all the uh, rest Yeah, it's it. amazing. Yeah. No, I mean, it's very, very chilled out place. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely unwind. and people think it's dangerous as well, which is probably great. So well, stop too many tourists going. Yeah, we try to <laughs> we try to spread that. If yeah. you actually look at, um, I got a website called HolfordNaturalHolidays.com, and in it you'll see our place in Wales, yeah. uh, which people rent just for holidays, but that's where we run our retreats. Yeah, it's lovely. And you'll see our place in Lamu, and um, I, I, what I love doing which is also part of my relaxation, is I take people off on safaris. Oh, amazing! Uh, so we. We travel uh, between Nairobi and Lamu through a true wild wilderness oh, wow. with all these elephants and cats and buffaloes and giraffes and all oh, sorts wow. of stuff. So for me, my true sort of regeneration um, is nature. Mm. I love nature. And that's why we're in the Black Mountains of Wales. So I think that, you know, getting your feet on the ground mm. and walking and being in nature and being in the ocean and swimming in the sea and just sort of being connected to the elements and all that sort of stuff has an incredibly regenerative um, effect. But I'm, I'm 62 years old now and my energy is pumpingly good. Mm. Uh, you know, I certainly when I'm on one, you know, which I am now with all this sort of... <laughs> I mean, I'm up at five, you yeah. know, every day, yeah. writing away. Uh, today I've already done an event this morning and I'll do another one this evening webinars all over the world 
And yeah, so every now and again, uh, I, I need to chill. Mm. And I'll take myself off to a natural environment, switch the phone off, leave the computer at home, and just be with yeah. nature. Recharge. Yeah, maybe yeah. with the odd whiskey or two. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds idyllic. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And, and, and your Pleasure. website's amazing. It's got so many links and to, to the web, upcoming webinars, all of your books, your retreats. Yeah, and now I'm, I didn't see the house in Lama. I'm going to look for that now. So I'm to look forward to. <laughs> see you there. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to rate or review the show and also share it with anyone that you think might enjoy it. You can follow me on Instagram at Tilly at Home With or email me Tilly at Home With at gmail.com. <laughs>